WFAE's David Borex has the story. Tariq Bakari and Larkin Eggleston call their podcast R&D in the QC. Eggleston says they hope to reach people who may not pay attention to the council. Eggleston is 35 and a Democrat. Bakari is a 37-year-old Republican. Despite their political differences, they bonded on the campaign trail in part over their beards, says Bakari. The beards themselves are what truly united us in the beginning. They hope to be an example of how to debate productively across the political divide. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 30 of R&D in the QC. Wow, that was totally spontaneous. Larkin, welcome to the show. We definitely did not ask them to cheer when we started the show. Yes, and everything has been smooth, too, so far. We are live at Camp North End, and I've already talked to one of my friends who this is their first time at Camp North End. It might be one of the hosts of this show's first time at Camp North End. How many of you have been to Camp North End before? About half the crowd. Oh, wow. This place is amazing. And yeah. so our first guest tonight, we're going to bring up and talk a lot about the past, present, and future of this site. Uh, for those that don't know, it is between Statesville Avenue and Graham Street, just a mile north of Uptown Charlotte. Uh, and my friend who, who came tonight and had never been here said, I, I don't feel like I'm in Charlotte anymore. And I think that's apropos. This place is going to be transformative for our center city. Um, we were just down in Atlanta and saw a place very similar to this that's tra- been transformative for Atlanta. We'll talk about that a little bit with Tommy from ATCO, who, who manages this property. Um, but we're glad to have you all here tonight. For anybody who doesn't know, I'm Larkin Eggleston. I'm a first-term Democrat on city council. Apropos. This is Tariq Bakari, a first-term Republican on city council. Uh, we both represent districts. Uh, this is not quite in my district, though. It right feels across, like it should be. It feels like it should be. It's like a D1 right a, vibe here. Right across the street, uh, right across Graham Street is my district, so this is very relevant to a lot of the neighborhoods that I represent in this city, and uh, we're really excited to be here. Uh, thank you to Damon and Varian, both of whom were not able to be here tonight, but who had asked us to come and do a live show. They're like, and, we uh, can't wait to have you out, but we're not going to be there, yeah. so... So we've got uh, two guests tonight. One is Tommy, who's going to be coming up just in a second from ATCO, like I said, who runs this property. The other, and unfortunately we didn't find out until last night, uh, so we weren't really able to market this, but you're in for a treat. We've got the, from 2010 to 2016, mayor of Houston, Texas, Anise Parker, is going to be here. First LGBT mayor in Houston's history, and they're the largest city, fourth largest city in the country. They're the largest city to ever elect an openly LGBT mayor. She was a was and is a groundbreaker and a leader in this country who uh, we're really glad could join us and was willing to come on tonight. So. I wish I could relay to you guys how much he's been geeking out for like the last three days straight, sending me texts. He's like, oh, look at this little write-up. and this. He's really excited about this. I'm excited, but not nearly as much as Larkin's. Ex- look at his face right now. Well, I ju- I'm just excited <laughs> when we get to have Democrats on the show instead of Republicans. It's all Democrats Because I get to nod and all smile the time. instead of having to frown and scowl. Um, so, yes, I imagine she and I will agree on more. She's wonderful. I was just with her two hours ago. She's excited to be on the show, albeit a bit apprehensive, which I don't blame her for. Um, not what bad could happen. You. Yes. So we did an episode on Tuesday. Not a lot mm-hmm. has happened on city council since then. Uh, Tark will 
hopefully spend no more than 60 seconds telling us about the economic development meeting that happened, and then we're going to jump right into our guests. Oh, 60 good, seconds? Good. You don't have to talk at all if you don't want to. Uh, well, I mean, we had an economic development retreat this week that was uh, the, big, the big focal point was we went to Top Golf and, uh, and, and we hit some balls there. But no, in, in all seriousness, economic development, the way I've been describing, how many of you like follow city council or local government stuff? Okay, nice. Two thirds. Excellent. Um, so this year's budget was all about, the theme was affordable housing. How much was this year's budget, Sark? It's like hundreds of dollars. $2.6 billion. Billion dollars. $2.6 billion. Now, affordable housing is the marquee point of this one. Obviously, anyone who's been following it knows we have an affordable housing crisis on our hands. Um, it's, it's estimated at 24,000 uh, more people that make either 30 or 60% of the area median income than, uh, than houses we, and units we actually have. So we, we put $50 million on the bond that we'll be voting for. We're spending a lot of time figuring out the plan for that. But this year's theme is affordable housing. Next year, it seems to be the case that the theme is going to be economic development, workforce development. Um, and if you look at those two years, I think that overall theme is going to end up being upward mobility. So we spent a lot of time talking about economic development. The ED committee um, hosted, uh, hosted, chaired by James Smudgy Mitchell. Um, we all came together for the whole afternoon and really strategically brainstormed on what do we need to do different. And I think the punchline is um, it's not projects or anything like that. We almost need to blow up government because it's operating in a 1980s or 90s style Kodak um, kind of structure right now. And, Figuratively uh, speaking, of course. No, no. Physically. Physically speaking. So I think that's the number one thing that I kind of walked away with. We operate in verticals, uh, and everyone has kind of fiefdoms and the things they own. I own this committee or this or that. And, and in reality, we need to own topics. We need to say, I'm going to own near homelessness as it relates to people who have transportation, affordable housing needs, and um, are upward mobility candidates for workforce uptraining. Or that we need to own topics like that, the customer profiles, not a topic like economic development or affordable housing. It's going to be a tall order, but I think we can blow all that up. So y'all can see why I was pessimistic was 60 seconds, about his ability to talk about something in 60 seconds. Um, but economic development does bridge nicely into bringing up our first guest, Tommy Mann. Tommy is the development director for ATCO, the company that owns and operates Camp North End, uh, along with lots of other projects, but we're going to be focused on Camp North End. This, to me, is, is an economic development project, uh, if there ever was one, because not only do you have the jobs that are being created with the construction, with the renovation of this site, we're going to have incubator sites uh, for small businesses in our community to set up and really start to grow and, and thrive and flourish. We've got the opportunity for restaurants and bars and, and local musicians to come out here and feature themselves to a, a captive audience of people. And once this thing is done, I really think it's going to be the crown jewel in the Queen City. So ladies and welcome gentlemen, to the show, Tommy Mann welcome Tommy to the stage. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, you're actually having us. This is your house. The pleasure is all yours, sir. Well, welcome. 
But tell us a little bit about your background, a little bit about ATCO, and then let's talk specifically about Camp North End. Sure. I'll start with ATCO. Uh, ATCO is a uh, fourth generation, almost 100-year-old family-owned real estate investment and development company. We're based out of New York, um, but about 10 years ago, uh, we started investing in the Southeast and markets like Charlotte and and the Triangle and uh, Atlanta and and, and other great uh, cities all around the Southeast. Um, We um, have a team here in Charlotte of uh, five, soon to be six people, uh, based here at Camp North End. Uh, I got here about a year ago. Um, I grew up in Charlotte, born and raised, but moved away about 10 years ago uh, and have been up in the D.C. area uh, working on urban infill mixed-use development in Washington, D.C. and and some of the surrounding area uh, and was just thrilled to be able to get an opportunity to come back here to Charlotte, bring my family back home and, and get to work on this amazing project. So what First, as, as the resident historian on council that loves anything that involves adaptive reuse, loves to find new ways to, to preserve old buildings and find new uses for them, uh, this is the epitome of that. Talk about the history of this site and all of the different life cycles it's had already before it became Camp North End. Yeah, a, a lot of Charlatans had no idea uh, that, that this site um, is even on the map and, and the really rich history that it has. It, it all started in 1924 when uh, Ford Motor Company opened a production facility uh, right in the heart of the site. Uh, they built the water tower, the, the sort of iconic water tower that a lot of people know Camp North End for, the boiler house, uh, and a 240,000 square foot Ford factory uh, where they assembled Model A's and Model T's. And they built about 300,000 cars in that factory before they had to shut down during the Depression. Um, When the U.S. got into World War II, the Army took over the Ford factory. They set up a quartermaster depot in Charlotte, and over the course of the war, the Army built everything else out here. Uh, 1.3 million square feet of of, of buildings out here uh, were concentrated. 1.3 million square feet. 1.3 million. That's a a lot. It was actually, he looked it up and then said it on a podcast in the past, and I was just kind of blown away when I heard that fact. I mean, how much was... uh, was uh, Atlanta's um, so Pont City Market in Atlanta is a little is a hair over two million square feet, and I mean it's it's nationally known. But we just assumed we had nothing like that. Yeah, no, the, the 1.3 million square feet, uh, the, all built during World War II. Um, after the war, the Army uh, transitioned this site from a quartermaster depot to a munitions depot. Uh, they called this the Charlotte Army Missile Plant or Camp. And they were assembling Hercules missiles here, Nike missiles here. They built vehicles here called uh, Gamma Goats, which were predecessor to the Humvee used in Korea and Vietnam. And there's one of them on site. There might be. It's hiding in a, in a closed building. A <laughs> missile? But it'll come out. No, not a missile. A Gamma Goat, the oh. predecessor to the Humvee. Mm. Yep. So, so the Army was here until the mid-70s. Um, building missiles, doing all sorts of secret things. We've met lots of people. Uh, uh, let me pause you there. What kind of secret things are we talking about here? So we don't, we don't know. We've met, we've met lots of people. That's why they're secret. That's oh. right. That's right. Um, folks that, uh, you know, their parents worked here, their grandparents worked here, and we'd say to them, well, what, what did your parents talk about when they came home from work? Nothing. Where, where, what building do they work in? We don't know. What did they do? And we, we, There's we, no chance for aliens, right? There's not like that's a, actually what I was thinking. I, I mean, literally, that just jumped out at me. Aliens? Uh, maybe. I, we don't know. Let's go with that. Maybe. We know. <laughs> Area 52. <laughs> terrible. This dude jo- jokes are terrible. 
Continue. I'm sorry. We cut you yeah, off. Yeah, so. no, no, no. That's okay. Um, so the, the Army was here until the mid-70s. The um, uh, history gets a little less exciting then. Uh, Eckerd uh, purchased the site. Uh, Rite Aid's predecessor and for the last you know 40 years was here operating a distribution center um, and so you know over the over this site's almost hundred year history uh, you know unless you worked for the army or uh, unless you you know worked for Ford Motor Company you, you would have had had no idea that behind these razor wire fences um, these buildings had such a rich uh, important history and that Charlotte you know played a role in uh, the sort of roots of, of innovation with Ford and, and what the Army was doing here. So talk a little bit about what this site is now, but really more importantly, what the vision for this site is going forward. Because for the last year or two, y'all have been doing activations on the site. It's kind of slowly been growing and, and getting renovated and decorated, and uh, people are starting to find it. But what is the long-term vision for this site along with what exactly is it now? If we visit it in five or ten years, like what, what's the experience going to be like? Yeah, well, in, in, in five or ten years, we'll be Ponce City Market. Um, so, so what you saw at Ponce um, will uh, will will be sitting here a mile outside of Uptown Charlotte uh, at at Camp North End. Um, but what? So the day we got here, you know, we, we knew that we had to, to to open up the doors to the site to, uh, to to Charlotte and and show people the history and and bring people in and and create a real sort of gathering place and a real community. Um, hub uh, here in the north end. Um, this site is 76 acres. It's massive. 76 acres on Uptown Charlotte is 14 square blocks. Um, and, you know, this site for 100 years has sort of been a barrier separating, you know, a, a handful, uh, eight great neighborhoods um, that, that surround this site. And so from day one, uh, you know, we opened up our doors, we started our renovation in, in public space. We created an area we call the boiler yard, which is just right outside the doors here, um, which is a great outdoor event space for us, live music and food trucks and Nota Company Store operates our canteen with beer and wine uh, and, and art and, and other surprises and pop-ups. Um, and, and then we renovated a couple of small buildings, um, easy buildings for us to do a quick renovation and, and get some tenants in here. And, and we handpicked, um, you know, local, local tenants, startups, people who, you know, this is their first brick and mortar spot. They're moving out of their garage. Uh, it's a mix of artists. It's a mix of nonprofits. Um, professional firms, designers, and, and some light production, some light manufacturing. Um, and, and, you know, every Friday night, tonight's Friday night, so every Friday night, come to Camp North End, uh, you know, you can come to the uh, boiler yard, uh, listen to live music, drink some beer, have some food from the food trucks, and a year from now, um, well, six months from now, we'll be opening up our first big office building. And for the people who, uh, again, haven't been out here and are listening to this, uh, you know, uh, in their in their earphones or in their car driving. I mean, we're in a room right now. Feels very kind of millennialish and funky. You know, great design. There's hundreds of people in this room listening the, to the podcast, and um, and we're looking right outside of this window here, where literally there's a whole nother environment. And y you mentioned kind of the bo boiler yard and what's going on. There's all kinds of crazy artwork on old Ford-looking buildings, and people are having beers. There's some children out there misbehaving. Those are my kids. Um, there's King of Pops. There's a band playing. Looks like it's funky. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a vibe you don't 
expect to stumble into out here in, in Charlotte in general, but this part of town for sure. And I, I think it's something wonderful. I guess one, one final question from me uh, uh, on this front is, you know, we're surrounded by a, a part of town, you know, half the part of town is uptown, which is obviously booming. Other parts are, are um, right now maybe going through different kinds of struggles. Uh, how, how does this help? And then from a gentrification perspective, how, how does this maybe hurt as well? And are you guys thinking about that? Yeah, no, we, we absolutely think about it. Um, so, you know, we, we are in a part of town that um, has, has lacked attention for, for a long time. Um, we, we see it in, in our construction that, you know, the infrastructure out here um, is, is lacking and, and hasn't been properly attended to. Um, and, and we're doing our part to uh, in, in improve uh, the, the infrastructure that, that touches this property and is around this property, you know, to the best of our ability. Um, we're, we're creating a lot of jobs here. I mean, in, in the next, you know, four or five years, we'll have, um, you know, between 500,000 and, and, and 800,000 square feet of new office and retail um, delivered and all the jobs and all the construction jobs, um, but all the permanent jobs that come with that. Um, and so, you know, and, and you mentioned, you know, the neighborhoods around us, um, everything we do is, is, is with our neighbors in mind and our community in mind, and we've sought input from the community from day one um, and making sure that, you know, as we're building out this place, we're building out really great public spaces um, that can be sort of centers for, for, for the neighborhoods around us and create a new center for the north end of Charlotte. I, will, I would like to give you credit. Half the neighborhoods around this site are ones that I represent on council, and I know we've got some neighborhood leaders here, uh, like Jeff from Graham Heights, Daryl from Druid Hills, um, and the North End Community Coalition, which is all of those neighborhoods that you mentioned, has, you've allowed them to have multiple events here. Um, I, I've yet to come out here that I've not seen Jeff, that I've not seen Daryl, that I've not seen other leaders from those communities. So I do think this has become a gathering spot that a lot of these neighborhoods didn't have to socialize, to meet, um, and to strengthen their communities. So I, I hope that that continues to be a part of y'all's vision going forward because I think it's been a huge amenity to the whole city, but, but very specifically to these neighborhoods that border it. So tell, um, before we wrap up this first segment, tell folks, other than Friday nights, which go through the end of October, I believe, yep. what other opportunities do they have to come and see this site be activated? Or businesses that may be thinking about that office space. Yeah, no, that's great. So we, um, we've got uh, two buildings under construction right now, really big building on Graham Street, about 165,000 square feet, um, and, and then another 25,000 square foot project kind of right in the heart of the site. And the, the idea there is we're delivering all sorts of office space, whether you're a startup or you're, you're a you know, one or two person user that, that wants to rent space in an Airstream trailer, or you're a you know, 100,000 or 200,000 square foot user um, that, that wants to be in, in the coolest, most authentic um, industrial class A office in Charlotte. Um, one, one of, you know, we hear all the time that companies, you know, come to Charlotte, they contact our economic development groups and, you know, they're looking to either relocate a corporate headquarters or they're looking for a big presence in town and, you know, they, they, they love our, our cost of living, they love our, our talented workforce, they love our airport, um, and they're looking for anything but a bank building. And up until now, you know, those companies either came to Charlotte and compromised and went into a bank building, uh, or they didn't come to Charlotte. But now, you know, those companies that want to be in a really 
cool, authentic, industrial office space that's, you know, like you would find in the meatpacking district in A New York. A dog just walked in here. I mean, need we say more? This We're place very is cutting friendly. edge and funky. You know what you don't have? Axe throwing. There's no axe He's really facilities. obsessed with lumberjacks. Dude, have you been, who's been to lumberjacks here or thrown an axe in a facility that serves alcohol? Yeah, it's incredible. You're right. All of you who didn't raise your hands, this, I'm so sorry. This is his new fixation is drinking and throwing axes. Yeah. Th- those guys come out on a Friday night. So we have axe throwing. We've also had beer keg throwing. Have you guys seen that? Not yet. Yeah. We, we had to redirect them away from the, you know, 100-year-old glass of the Ford building. The but it's a lot of fun. House. Oh. That should be like an, you pay extra for that experience to be real close to the Or old one glass. person stands on one side and throws a keg. The other person stands on the other side and tries to hit it with an axe. <laughs> and it's right next to the old Ford stained glass. That's adaptive reuse right there, Larkin. We certainly appreciate you allowing us to have our show here. I'm just going to ignore. But thank you for having us out. Thank you for all you guys are doing. And we look forward to seeing this continue to grow and continue to evolve. Uh, and we hope any of our listeners that are listening to this when we put it out next week who haven't had a chance to come out here will find a Friday. Let that be their excuse because, um, as was said tonight by a first-time visitor, uh, this really feels like you've stepped outside of Charlotte. It's something that we've never had, something that we've never seen in our own backyard. And so we're appreciative to you guys for bringing that to us and appreciative. And let us know what we can do to help. Yes. I appreciate that, and we're super proud of that. So if there's any you. red tape we need to cut through, we're there. Thank you. We've been Good. cutting tape, right. man. Thank cutting you, man. Tape. Everybody, let's hear it for him. And right on cue, just as we were wrapping up, we have our next guest uh, walk in the building. But I want to thank first my dear friend who allowed for this connection to happen and for us to have Mayor Parker on with us tonight. Um, Judge John Arrowwood is in the room as well. He is on the North Carolina Court of Appeals and is running for re-election this year. Um, So I would highly encourage that you look Judge Arrowwood up, learn about him. Uh, He has served our state uh, on the court on two occasions and is looking to serve another term. So he's a wonderful guy here in Charlotte and was the one who was kind enough to make the connection between me and Mayor Parker. So without further ado, we would like to welcome up former Houston mayor from 2010 to 2016, Mayor Anise Parker. Welcome to the show, Mayor! As you can already tell, he's the one you have to watch out for. I promised you I would I'm totally harmless. I'm used to slapping down council members. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) I like to do my Oprah voice. You get a car! You get a car! my Oprah voice. So did you, when you were the mayor, or you, you know, were Houston's on council? the strongest strong mayor city in the United oh, States. Oh, well, that's helpful. Um, did you have strong any council mayor. members who sometimes needed to be reined in a little bit? Yeah, it's like children. What's real easy is you're a strong mayor to do that, right? I mean, you're just like, you, you're gone, right? <laughs> no, but uh, do you know what it means to be a, a strong mayor? Um, there are 22,000 city employees in the city of Houston. They all worked for the mayor. Not for the council members. Wow. Uh, mayor's hired and fi- mayor hires and fires all department directors, not so, the council members. So you get, you get to guess. How many employees do you think Charlotte has, and how many of them do you think work for Tarek and myself? All. Well, you're a council manager system, so nobody works for y'all here either. Oh, we three have, people, we have three, three people. Done. Three people report to us, and we, we only have 8,000 employees. 24,000 is incredible. We have the city attorney, the city manager, and the city clerk are the only three people we hire and fire. Everybody else reports up through them. So 
Um, but hold, let, let me ask a question because I've, I've been waiting for someone who actually has like actual expertise and experience in. I thought you were going to say power. Yeah, and power. <laughs> no. So I think because it's the only one I really know that the weak mayor, strong manager system, it feels to me as long as you have a good manager, like a better system pound for pound to me because mayors will come and go with, with more uh, frequency than maybe a strong manager. And our bailout system and everything is we don't deal with personnel issues, which clearly a strong mayor can't say that. I guess my question is, it, it, are the benefits of being maybe um, you know, a, a strong mayor, do they outweigh the, the, the benefits of a strong manager that can have the continuity as again I, I it all is based on the people it, it depends on the, it depends on how dysfunctional your your city council is frankly that because that city manager has multiple bosses and the city of Houston for good or ill I set the agenda now, now the current mayor sets the agenda but and the council members had to vote on the budget and uh, established major policy policy initiatives uh, but they didn't uh, they weren't involved in the day-to-day -day running of the city and when I say I'm the, it was the strongest strong mayor not not only did, did all the city employees report to me but I was a voting member of the city council I controlled the agenda nothing got on the agenda that I didn't approve and I voted first you sound like a mob boss. It's, yeah. it's the closest thing to a benevolent dictatorship first. you hey, can have. Hey, you, sit back down. You know I vote first. You want, what was it no, you said last week? Concrete, uh, getting some new concrete shoes. We'll put you in some concrete shoes. You know, in a roll call vote, all the council members knew, because I voted first, they knew whether they were going to be on my good side or bad side by the end of the, the vote. So you said Houston's the strongest strong mayor government. Yeah. Is that just because, like, you were a badass? Or is it like no. they've ranked them and it's... Yeah, Houston. just because of the, the amount of authority. What, what happened in the 40s, we had, a city, we had a city manager and we had a mayor and they just mushed the two positions together and so it all went into the How the much mayor. did you get paid? $200,000 a year. And, and it's, it's considered I'd have, to a spend, I'd have to spend 10 years on Charlotte City Council to okay. make that. Council members make uh, like $65,000 a year. Yeah. It's a big city. It's the fourth largest city Is in the Is everyone considered full-time? No, mayor's full time and is not allowed to have other employment. City count and and well, our, I guess not. And I mean, council members, <laughs> council members are part time, but uh, all the good ones do it full time. Yeah. I'm just. <laughs> yeah. And how many saying? council members did y'all have? Uh, uh, sixteen. <laughs> five, five at large, and eleven uh, by district. We and have in fact, the the most the, the the most complicated thing I did probably in the six years I was mayor. And we have two-year terms, so I actually was a real. That was my next twice. question. How? What were your 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 term? Uh, but we we, uh, we expanded council from nine council members to eleven, so we moved every district line in the city. Didn't get sued and had unanimous support. It is possible to do. Were all your districts gerrymandered, though? Uh, no, I mean that that, that was. Were competi there were some competitive ones. All every one of ours is gerrymandered. There is literally no, but we're not gerrymandered. They're not nonpartisan. Oh. So yes, they're competitive. So, so yeah, well, they gerrymandered. We we did we had to move every line, so every council member was uncomfortable. Houston, ladies and gentlemen, very interesting place. Ours, right? ours aren't gerrymandered per se, but they're all safely Republican or Democrat, and so the prime we have partisan primaries, and that's all that matters. Once you win your primary, you're it's a you're de facto elected. And most most cities across America are nonpartisan elections. I don't really look outside uh, of Charlotte that often. That's good to know. You can't, there's, 
you know, there's not I much. Mind it. Picking up trash is not partisan. Filling well, potholes is not partisan. And it's, that's what we talk about a lot on the show. That once you get to, to, in our case, Raleigh, or you get to Washington, a lot of those are the issues that really, really divide people, and that they can't find common ground. But at a local level, it really shouldn't be that partisan. And most of the things we're discussing, you know, oftentimes when it gets into spending and taxing and things, it can get a little bit. But to your point, most city services, most municipal services, are not something that Republicans and Democrats view through a different lens. It's just taking care of the constituents and taking care of your citizens. So um, it's, it's interesting that cities that large would do nonpartisan and, and something maybe we should look more into. You, you were know, New York is always is always that the outlier because it is it is partisan right. and then of course Mayor Bloomberg was a Republican Democrat and independent elected three times at three different party labels. So I mean it was meaningless there. So you were on city council, um, served another role that I actually don't even understand because we don't have, we probably have something equivalent, but it, it's a different title, and then became mayor for six years. But you were the first LG, openly LGBT mayor elected in the city of Houston, and Houston is, I think, still, but was certainly then, the largest city to ever elect someone uh, who was openly a member of the LGBT community. What was that like for you to kind of break that glass ceiling and uh, what challenges did that present you, but, but also what platform did that present you? It gave me the opportunity to be the mayor of my hometown. I loved it. I loved, I loved being mayor. I was excited to go to work every day. But I was excited to go to work when I was a council member, and I was the elected controller. The, the strong mayor cities tend to have an elected controller or treasurer so that you know, the mayor doesn't go off to Aruba with the money. So, that, so it's equivalent to a treasurer, yeah. more or less. And yeah. we, we have a department of that, but we don't have an elected treasurer. Well, as mayor, I had a finance department, and the, the uh, you know, city treasurer was actually, it worked for me as the mayor, but the controller is an independent elected official who does the annual uh, audits, primarily. Along the lines and, of... And invests the money. It's like when I was city controller, I used to say I, had, I could give you a traffic ticket, or I could give you the death penalty, and nothing in between. Because I get, you know, because I had final Again, authority I think over the budget. Speaking. Uh, figuratively speaking, yeah, because I could, because I had to certify the budget. I'm like, that was maybe that's what hit. she meant by strongest strong mayor in America. She could sentence people to death. <laughs> um. No, 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 no. Well, not today, you mean? But but depends being, on how I love municipal government, and I actually think it's the, I actually think it's the the most important level of government. Why is that? Yeah. It is. Hey, it is. if you have running water in the morning and your toilet's flush, nothing is more important than that. Am I right? That's a I fact. Mean, and, it's, and it's every day. Cities are 24-7, and they, uh, you, you, you notice when something goes wrong in the city immediately. You might not miss your state representative for months or years. Or Ever. <laughs> yes. Ever. So let I, me remember. Ask, let me, I, I didn't know flushing toilets was an applause line. Yeah, it is it now. Is. Yeah. So let me ask a question. Um, and I think hopefully you're getting a sense. I'm assuming you're a regular podcast listener. Um, and, uh, and He means and, of ours. He's of, very yeah, confident. No. Oh, this is a podcast, by the way, that you're on right now. I don't know how much uh, everyone updated you before this. But um, Larkin and I are on different sides of the aisle, but we, we bonded in the beginning over our beards and love for fine liquors and things like that. And we've developed a friendship, as have many other of the new council members. We have uh, a majority now that are newly elected and under 40 that are now, I think, one of the first cities in the United States that has a majority of millennials that, 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 are, that are newly elected. And one of the things we've been doing is, again, to the points you raised earlier, 
that's why a lot of us love local politics because it doesn't have to be partisan. And we try to figure out ways, you know, to maintain the principles that make us align with the parties we're in, yet also realize that maybe some of the old ways of doing things are broken and, uh, and, and so divisive at national and state levels that uh, if we don't chart our own course, it may, it, who knows where it's going to go. And last week's episode, um, after our meeting, which we normally record after, after council sessions, he just brought up, and I had been thinking about it, the, I think what you're in town for, the, the Pride Festival and, and parade that's going on this weekend. And I was just really intrigued by you being, the, as, as again, one of the first LGBT um, uh, mayors of, and of, of such a magnitude city. And what I've been trying to wrap my mind around, this is a totally honest question, is there's a bit of a dichotomy in my own party over this topic. And on one side of it, I think Larkin brought it up the last episode, which I totally agree, is we're all smaller government and individual rights as long as they don't bleed over and start impacting the rights of others. And that is in direct contradiction of, um, of you know, some of the things that some Republicans have gone after on that front. But on the other side, one of the things I seriously still have a problem with is, so. I think our generation and below, just think about this whole topic differently, but on, on the other side of it, you've got, uh, you've got this concept of protecting the rights of individual groups in kind of a one-off different way. And the other side of my conservative principles still falls to that angle of the more you point out and make specific special treatment in the kind of regulations and rules you present, the more you, while there are definite immediate term needs today, the more you continue to divide when the next generation coming up hopefully doesn't see that stuff, and eventually people will die out that really care. So I guess my question to you is... I, I was waiting if there was a question. There, well, was just, he's, he's very long-winded. Uh, you know, this is a point so We're on quickly. episode 30, and this is, he hasn't gotten any better I at this. I haven't gotten any better. His questions are seven so, minutes long. as we get to the... the I, I, I ask because this has been something I've really wanted to square up personally. My conservative principles are tried and true and strong, but I view this one as contradictory on one side, and on the other side, what's, what's the greatest good for the outcome we want to get to? So how has your, who you are as an individual and the role you've played, how have you balanced that out, and what have you seen on Republican sides of thinking that's a model for us on this side to really start engaging and embracing with that more? So politically, I am a Democrat. And all of the big cities in Texas have strong Democratic majorities. But uh, our, for the most part, we're elected on nonpartisan ballots. And by the time I ran for, I, I ran for office uh, nine times successfully citywide in Houston. By the time I ran for mayor, I'd already been elected six times. And I was the, the safe choice. I was elected by Republicans. I was running against uh, a, an, an African-American Democrat who had never been held a political office before. And do you, do you want the person who has served you for 12 years, who you may or may not have voted for, but you know her, and I was coming out of the controller's office and, and America was in the midst of a recession. You want the person who knows how to look under the couch cushions and find dollars. And uh, I actually had the endorsement of, of uh, former First Lady Barbara Bush when I ran from that, which is the blessing of being in a nonpartisan race. If I'd been running as a, a Democrat, I don't think she ever would have done that. Um, so, 
being the more conservative of the two Democrats and having a long history already, that's how I became the first out LGBT mayor of a top 10 US city. And I'm just gonna throw out this factoid because I think it's important. I was the first LGBT mayor of a top 10 US city, but I was only the 10th woman in American history to lead a top 10 US city too. And I think that's, it's. And that was in 2010. 2010. Never in New York, never in L.A., never in Philly, one in Chicago. Number 11 was Ivy Taylor, who was the mayor of San Antonio, who's no, no longer in office. So of the 11 women now to have led the top 10 U.S. cities, six of us were from Texas. And, and so for everybody that says, oh, it's a really conservative place, it is. But the, the big cities are... Uh, sort of forward thinking and uh, the, the beauty of Texas and what people don't understand from the outside is, uh, you know, we still have a little bit of that frontier attitude. I want to know what you can do more than who you are. And that served me very well in the, the years I was in office and it, and it worked in the other cities as well. So two Democrat, two women in Houston, two in Dallas and two in San Antonio. So we're not yet a top 10 city. We're in that second tier. But I would imagine that a lot of the a lot of the problems, a lot of the successes that you had in your term as mayor in Houston, but also a lot of the challenges you had probably mirror a lot of the ones that, that we have had and are continuing to have here. What were some of the things that you faced there over your six years as mayor, but more your two decades of service that were the toughest things that you had to tackle? So some, the order may vary, but Pretty much the same things are the are problems in uh, every city in America. One is uh, lack of investment in infrastructure, and you have crumbling infrastructure. Come uh, over and visit District 6. We can show you some things over there. Uh, it's a legacy debt, uh, often environmental issues, uh, traffic, uh, housing issues. We a big homelessness problem in, in Houston, in which I worked uh, hard on. Uh, we have a particular problem in, in flooding. That's probably unique for Houston, different from, from here. Uh, trying to move water in Houston is like trying to drain a bathtub with the plug in the, <laughs> in the drain hole because it's, it's really flat. Or like, the public works used to tell me it's like trying to drain a pool table without rocking it. So uh, that, those are the big issues. But I know that uh, y'all are facing a, a housing issue right now. And... I'm actually on the speak at, speaking circuit nationally on, on homelessness issues and on uh, climate change issues because uh, I, I spent 20 years working in the oil industry before I was elected to office. And going back to your previous question, one of the things that helped me, when I, when I left college in the 70s and, and entered the oil industry, it was 80% of the Houston economy. Uh, when I left 20 years later, it was only 40% of the Houston economy, but it really helped me that I came out of the largest employer uh, in, in Houston and had a real understanding of the economics of, of the oil industry and, and how that worked for, for Houston. But uh, related to homelessness and economic development and uh, job opportunities and, and our opportunities in, in cities, is how do you provide housing for your workforce that you want to keep? And I know that's a big issue for you guys right now. What's your secret there? What's your like go-to number one kind of message or piece of guidance? On homelessness? Well, ho homelessness, homelessness or, housing. Or, or affordable housing. 
uh, workforce housing. I won't call it affordable housing. Affordable housing is a term of art, and it really is government-subsidized housing for ultra-low-income people. But workforce housing is a, a, is a growing problem across America. Well, first, Houston's the queen of sprawl. Uh, the city proper is 640 square miles, so we're, we spread out all over the coastal prairie, and we're still arguably, arguably the least expensive of the, the megacities in, in America, so our housing, the housing pressures weren't as extreme as some other places, but we did, uh, we did a lot of work, and one of the things I'm really proud of is, we started when I was a council member, but we expanded when I was mayor, we created what we call the Land Assemblage Redevelopment Authority. We discovered that we, Land Assemblage Redevelopment Authority, LARA. Uh, not, nothing important about the name, but what we did is that we discovered that we had abandoned properties across the city. And uh, rather than let the private sector sort that out, we began to step in and we did a tri-party agreement with the city, the school district, and, and the county where we foreclosed on all those properties, took them into the city inventory, and then flip them back out into the marketplace for uh, affordable housing projects. We tried to, but it, what we quickly found out that is if you do like one here and one here and one there and one over there, it doesn't work very well. But if you can get a critical mass in a, in a single area, it's better for the developer, but it also allows you to do more of a neighborhood turnaround. Because then you can, it's not just about housing, is there a grocery store? Is there a dry cleaner? Is there the pharmacy? We're, we're in the middle yeah. of a huge uh, decision on, among many other things, how to spend a, our, our record-breaking bond amount, the framework for what percentage of area median income we're focusing on. But this week and next week is, is really big on lo locational policy. Like yes. that. If anyone could hear that on the <laughs> podcast... A couple days from now, that was a dog howling at someone walking by. I'm glad you clarified that because literally, I did not know what was going on. I thought it was, the, I yes. thought it was the weirdest sneeze ever. Yeah, I did too at first. Can that? Can you guys do that on command? Like, can we do that again? The guy try to do it one more time. I couldn't wait to figure out what human that came from. <laughs> <laughs> Great, he did it. They won't. And know. If anyone's wondering, that second one was Tark. Yes, no, it wasn't. Uh, locational policy because we have a number of units 24,000 units we're going after to solve for right now that there's less of those than people who need them at the, at the AMI levels but then you get into this locational policy and do you concentrate them in the areas where you can afford to build more of them or do you put them in the areas where truly you're going to impact upward mobility but you're going to do a fifth to a tenth to a twentieth of the number of units based on the, the price of the land that's a classic chicken and egg problem, very familiar with it. First, let me give you another factoid about Houston. And we're, uh, we have no zoning. We're the largest unzoned city in America, which actually has helped us keep our housing and land costs closer to market because you don't have any artificial constraints. The, we, we do private covenants, and so you'll have a deed-restricted neighborhood, but if you don't have a private covenant, the, you know, a warehouse district can, can go to condos in a matter of months. Just flip so like there, by the market. So if Larkin's was in Houston and he wanted... It could be a drive through Chick-fil-A. ...to build a 20-story tower on it if he wasn't, with a drive through Chick-fil-A, he could do that. Uh, in a lot of neighborhoods, he could. Uh, there are, Ooh. again, private covenants, deed restrictions, which would prohibit that in certain neighborhoods. But if you buy in, you know you're buying into the covenants. 
And when I was a council, when I actually was mayor, we passed a historic preservation ordinance. So there are some neighborhoods, I'm a preservationist, and I live in a National Register house. There are some neighborhoods in Houston that you can't do that. But one of the awful neighborhood spats I had to, I inherited from the previous mayor was a 20-story apartment building in a residential neighborhood of two-story homes that was on an unrestricted lot in the middle of a deed-restricted neighborhood, and they were picketing and sending hate mail, and I'm like, Look at this guy fidget I got, no, right I got now. nothing to help you. Try, See him try, try having a meeting <laughs> once a month where you do 20 rezonings and half of them have people that are angry about it. I them. love it. What yeah, a li- no, my libertarian zoning, side so. just loves the no zoning. We are the ultimate libertarian city. I mean, I, I, uh, while I'm not exact, I need a, we need to come down and check Chick-fil-A out But if the Chick-fil-A goes in next to your house, you won't like it. You should come. Yeah. It, it, it is actually, it maybe, is one of the reasons. Maybe city visit sometimes. So. That's it, man. I'm Yimby unless it's NIMBY, right? It's, it's in my backyard, then that's different. But I'm yet, I think everybody's pretty much like it, you. It, it, has made up, us, yeah. it has made us closer to the marketplace in terms of land values. And when, and when the rest of the country had the mortgage crisis and everybody was sliding in recession, we did not. We didn't until the oil prices dropped. We're, we're more sensitive to oil prices than anything else. And you can, unless you live, again, in a severely deed-restricted neighborhood, you can launch your business in your garage. Or as long as you're not doing, there's certain things that we do prohibit if you cause noise meth. or, yeah, you meth. meth. You can't yeah. do meth. Noise or chemical problems. But you can't you, rezoning wouldn't stop a mobile meth lab from popping up, no matter well, how high you built it. would if they asked you if they could <laughs> do it. But... Yeah. But they don't uh, usually ask. Uh, no. I need to call a meeting for this but, one. Yeah, that, that, would cause, that would cause problems for the neighbors. So unless you're causing problems for the, for the neighbors. Uh, but it, it, it does sometimes make for some incompatible uses. And it does make, it's not that we don't do planning. We do do planning. We just don't do zoning. We don't tell you what you can build. We tell you the code to which you have to build it. So before we let you get out and enjoy the live music and the rest of, of what's going on at Camp North End tonight, Tell everybody a little bit about the work that you're doing now, um, and then feel free to plug anything else that's that's on your mind. And then I have one final question. It's okay. probably going to be something sure. silly. So. No, it's all fine. Um, so I've been out of office two and a half years, and I, after six months, I went to work for a really large nonprofit in the city of Houston called uh, Baker Ripley. $300 million nonprofit dealing primarily with immigrants and, and refugees. We have a large refugee and immigrant community in Houston. And I was the CEO and waiting for a year, and, and two things happened. One was that Harvey hit Houston almost exactly a year ago, and my agency was asked to stand up one of the evacuation shelters. There was a shelter in the city convention center and a shelter in the county convention center, each for 10,000 people. And I became the daytime manager of the county's convention center, and due respect to Baker Ripley, which is a wonderful organization, it became clear that they weren't as interested in, and I wasn't as interested in them and, and being the CEO, and that what I was doing at the shelter was more exciting than what I was doing for the nonprofit. And it was like I was running my own city again. And I realized, except I had to feed people three meals a day while they were there, but I realized that uh, I was excited to go to work every day for 18 years I was in public life. I wanted to be excited to go to work again. And I was home for a week after I quit the nonprofit, and uh, a group called the LGBTQ Victory Fund, and Victory Institute called me up and said, 
would you be our CEO? And I said, I'm not moving to DC. I'm a Houstonian. And they said, okay, you're just going to be on a plane a lot. So I'm, I'm on a plane a lot. The, LGB, the Victory Fund only works with LGBT candidates. And we are nonpartisan. We work all across the country. We work at all levels of the ballot. Um, the amazing Judge Arrowwood is one of our candidates. But, uh, and I'm actually down here to, to support him more than for Charlotte Pride. Uh, but we, we do candidate training, we do leadership development for LGBTQ candidates. We don't do policy, we don't lobby. Our belief is that if you put the right people in the right place, they'll do the right things. And for us, capable, competent LGBTQ uh, leaders in public office will be doing the right things to advance the community. There are more than 400 out candidates running across the country this year, which is an order of and, magnitude. And based more. on the primaries, you're you're doing pretty well with help, with supporting these candidates. And we'll ultimately end up supporting about half of them. Not all of them are viable. Not all of them, uh, you know. We we do background information. We, are any of them screened. Republicans? Yes, not many. Uh, there are 559 out elected officials across the country, and 13 of them are Republicans. We have. I think four Republican candidates that we've endorsed out of the 200, they can't get through their primaries. Interesting. Interesting. But I mean, look, that goes back to where, uh, the, the dilemma of uh, uh, the new generation is going to figure something out, right? I mean, because things aren't going to be able to continue. And the, the difference in the trajectory this year is that the candidates are younger. I mean, there's this surge of candidates. There's candidates of color, women, uh, LGBTQ candidates, and they're much. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of young candidates and a lot of first-time candidates. And, yeah, it's changing the landscape. For the Democrats, it's skewing it th some things a little bit to the left. But I would say that's because we work down ballot, races are won on local issues. And uh, it, it's a matter about f knowing, your, knowing your district, knowing your constituents, knowing what the issues are, and having a, pl a, a plan to address them. That's what gets people elected and so when you see these far left candidates getting elected that's what the people want in those districts not all over the country well right, so now for the final question which is inevitably going to be ridiculous yes well we've started a thing this is our 30th episode let's get let's hug it out larkin real quick 30 episodes together my friend it's been so so long uh, okay you really people really need to see the look on larkin's face as he this gets normal this, face this little bromance hug going on yeah up well, here. what we've learned in he those makes me uncomfortable a lot 30 episodes is literally like you couldn't listen to all of our episodes if you binge listened for a day i mean it is that many you're very good at math yeah i mean look, that's one I of the things the i do math. like about that's you that's what he likes yeah, about 24 me 24 hours 30 hour long episodes is more than a day well done sir so, yes, good points. Um, so Can we, I just say that the reason yeah. I'm standing here and not sitting, this has got to be one of the most uncomfortable chairs I've ever tried to sit in. But it's in. trendy. Ooh. Do you not? It's trendy. It's a trendy chair. Like it's not supposed to be comfortable. seating position I'm in right now? It's very, <laughs> I just thought I, it was like I'm a just, power move. You're like, I'm one of the most powerful mayors I, yeah. in the country. You're like, yeah, I'm going to stand, stand here and like. I mean, we're not going to question a power mayor, <laughs> you know, if she wants to stand or sit. If she wants you to do stand. what you want. I'm not going to say anything I'm about it. I'm trying to go home to my kids tonight. I'm posing here against the chair, but literally my feet won't reach the bar underneath. That's it. That chair's, that's it. Whoever put that chair there is going to die tomorrow. Someone's getting fired. Um, so 
we learned early on that Larkin is terrible at anything pop culture or trivia related whatsoever. So we throw in some random trivia questions. I happen to have looked these up while we were mid-episode here. So you get one point. I didn't know you were paying attention while I was talking. I, I'm, that's how me, I, I'm not that great at math, but I'm good at multitasking. So I'm going to say a rap lyric, and you get one point for whoever shouts out the name of the rapper, and one point Oh, for whoever shouts out time. the name of the song, and and three points I, if you get both. Well, hold on, I got a question for her first. Are you friends with Slim Thug? Uh, yeah, I've met him a few times. Actually, I'm friends with Bun B. Slim Thug, I have met, but Bun B's my Bun B's my homie. You have so you've got so many extra I, cool points right now. <laughs> Y'all know Bun B. Bun is a Houstonian, and uh, okay, let me tell you the. Let me. I have to tell you my Bun B story. He called and he asked me if I would introduce him. You call him Mr. Him. Bun or like? What you... His name is Bernard Freeman, um, but That's Bun. Bernard. That's so less Bun. gang. That's so less <laughs> yes. gangster. I yeah, know. I call him Bernard. I, I know. I call him Bun, but no, he called me. He has my phone number. Uh, we did a series of commercials together for no texting while driving. And the two of us... Typical rap move, all right. Well, yeah. it's, it, texting while driving is dangerous. So we did a series of PSAs and, and, got, to be, and got to be friends. And, and he invited me to a Rockets playoff game. He got a suite. He, and he, he, he called me up and he said, Hey, Mayor, I got a suite for this Rockets playoff game. I'd really love for you to come. It's going to be... Slim's going to be there. There's some other folks. And I'm thinking, Why do I want to go <laughs> hang out? With a bunch of rappers in a suite, I, hey, I want to go watch the Rockets game. And every time I've been in a, in a suite, it's like party animals. and like, oh, my God, it's just going to be you know, raucous. And, but, and I had someplace else to go. So I, but I said yes, and I showed up. And I was in a formal attire, like floor-length, formal. I'd been to a formal event, and all the rappers were there. It was were the they quietest. in formal attire? Well, they had a lot, you know, they had the grills and the chains, but which might count. Yes, the grills and the chains. Yes. But yes. it was the quietest suite I have ever been in. They were all lined up in their seats watching the game. It was perfect. We had a great time. Everyone was we stoned out of their minds. No, 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 no. These are basketball fans. These are basketball fans. We're discussing the moves. We're just, nobody's drink. Nobody was drinking. Nobody was partying. It was about the game. And then a few years I hope so you later, have a picture from that night. I do. Like actually. you in a formal gown, Bun B, Slim it's Thug. It's in my phone. It's in my phone. That's a so, phenomenal story. No. And then a couple years later, Bun called me up and said he was, he was doing a show and he wanted Bernard. to know if I would introduce him on stage. So he actually texted me, and I texted him back, and I said, sure, tell me what time and where, and he told me, and he said, and I said, what time does it start? And he goes, well, I'm, I'm supposed to come on at, at midnight. And he texted me back, and he goes, that's not too late for you, is it? <laughs> <laughs> and I sent him a vulgarity back on the phone. And, um, but but here's, the, here's the fun. I was a mayor, and I had to travel with my security detail. So we showed up at uh, Fitzgerald's, which is a club in Houston, and they actually, moved the sh they actually moved it up to 11 so I could meet my bedtime. But I'm coming in and my, with my security detail, who are all Houston police officers, and someone says, oh, Bun's in the back in the green room. And I start walking to the green room, and I get about 10 feet away from the green room, and I could smell the smoke coming from the green room. And I knew I couldn't put my police officers in that position, so I just, I kind of stopped and I said, you know, I think I'm going to go hang out up in the front. And I, 
And I ended up introducing him, and I had a conversation with Bun later. It was a year later. We were talking about that night, and I, and I told him, you know, the reason I didn't come back to the green room is I smelled the pot smoke, and I didn't, I didn't want to have my, you know, make my... No, my officers would have been in a really bad position. And, and he started, he busted out laughing, and he goes, you started to walk into the room with the officers, and everybody in the green room went running to the john and was flushing everything. <laughs> Okay, I'm, well, I'm so glad I asked that question. I, I, I'm not going to lie. Like, uh, this was meant to, like, get you guys in. Clearly, I'm out of my league right now with my couple uh, questions here. But let's proceed anyway. They're going to they're gonna start easy and progressively get harder. I, I really, I love Bun, but I don't listen to his music. I know UGK, and, and I know how let's many four-letter words do. he let's has. see what I can do. Again, either the name of I the liked you before this. Yeah. But I really but, like uh, you Honestly, I, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a fan. If you could introduce like, we've me got, around. We've got a really cool mayor, but he I'm actually, not sure she knows about no. UGK. I did a fellowship, no. I did That's a, true. That I did so a fellowship true. at Harvard, and actually... With uh, UGK? No, well, he was... Uh, uh, the he other knows, one ghost, Ghostface Killer like, and... There'd be a seance involved. No, Bun <laughs> came up, I invited him up, and Harvard paid, paid for him to come up, and we did a lecture together uh, to students at Harvard, and, and just so you know... Harvard has the hip-hop museum. It's the whitest place in America, but they have the hip-hop museum on the Harvard campus. And so Bun came up, and we toured the hip-hop museum, and he did a lecture with me, and uh, strange. Before I continue, are there any other stories you would like to just throw out here that are even crazier than that? It's like I can keep you from asking me the questions I won't know the answers to. This okay. is, is a good technique. I mean, it doesn't matter what happens from this it's, point forward. This, is more, this game is more about You've trying to shame me. You've proven your street cred at this point. We're good. He's not okay, ready? Here we go. Artist and song title or both. She got a light-skinned friend look like Michael Jackson, got a dark-skinned friend look like Michael Jackson. The white guy voice he reads them in makes it impossible to try to conjure up the song. It's part of the game, my friend. It's like I've heard that lyric, but it just, it's, like, it's so off-putting to hear that voice. Anyone? Yell it out. Kanye West. Correct. We would have gotten three points if you had named the tune Slow Jams. He also makes up point values. There's no real... Yeah, there's lots, of, there's lots no of reasons I don't here. listen to Kanye. Mm, mm. Here we go. Yeah, uh, kind of ready? Kanye. Dinner, you ate it. There is nothing left. It was salty with butter, and it was deaf. You proceeded to eat it because you was in the mood. But, Holmes, you did not read it was a can of dog food. That actually doesn't sound familiar at all. That's a tough one. I audience, said they're going to get harder. Audience help. Audience help. Woo! Yeah, boy. Well done, sir. <laughs> Run DMC. You be Illin. Well done. Got okay. A Houston hat back there. Did you notice that? We have uh, one more. He travels with the mayor just wherever she's at. <laughs> He's like a groupie for Mayor Parker. <laughs> oh, there's so many good ones here. It's so hard. Ooh, here we go. Here's the final one. Ready? Thank God. Scooby snack, Jurassic plastic gas booby trap. <laughs> you? <laughs> oh, yeah, gotcha. Ghostface killer, nutmeg is the name of the tune. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Larkin is terrible at trivia, pop culture, and rap. 
And still, still not. So why don't you do it back to him? Embarrassed. He didn't. He yeah, wouldn't I even know where to go look. It would be I on could, the internet. You would have I could to ask find him that. Anything intelligent. But I don't need to prove myself to him. I'm far more confident and secure with myself. It's pretty clear that Republicans understand the hip-hop world more than Democrats. <laughs> Says the guy who didn't know who Slim Thug, Bun B, or UGK were. I didn't know those stories, but clearly now we're going to hang out with well, them. Now we, now we know why you quoted Kanye. Well, Larkin... Oh, shit. Ah... Uh. If these were our mics, I would tell you to drop one of them, but they're not, so please don't. Yeah. She's really crushed us here at the end. Larkin. There's nothing we, we can do to top that, so we will just thank Mayor Parker for joining us. Thank you to ACO and Camp North End. Thank you to all of you for coming out. This has been R&D in the QC with Larkin Eggleston and Tariq Bakari. We'll talk to you all next week. Peace.